So anyways, that's, uh, that's that. Today we are starting a brand new series called Prepared. Inside of your note sheet is a, or inside of your program, excuse me, is a note sheet that looks like this. So you can follow along, write some things down on the back. Or if you text the word notes to the 97,000 thing, it'll get a text message. It'll take you to a spot. Um, because there's some things on there. We're going to be going through a text. And I also know this TV is currently not working. That happened uh, at the end of first. And so um, I apologize. I know that. If you're interested in the first few rows, you're going to have to trust me that this is on the screen behind me, okay? And the rest of you in the back, you got the best seats tonight because you can actually see the screen. So apologize for that. My bad, but whatever. <clears throat> um, all right. Series called Prepared. And if, uh, if you are a first-time guest, you picked a great day, not just because it's the first part of a series, which is always the best one to come to, but also because today is kind of one of those internal talks. Like, I'm going to be talking specifically to the people who, um, like, already have decided, who are on Team Jesus, who, like, I'm, like, I'm already convinced. Um, this is great. So if you are, if you are not, uh, do not, like, uh, identify as a Christian, this is perfect because this is, like, no application Sunday for you. This is, like, free pass. You, you, have, you don't have to do nothing. You get to watch and you get to hear about why, why you think sometimes Christians are, like, are awkward or odd or whatever, because that's what we're going to talk about today. So if, you've ever, if, and if you are a Christian, here's what we're going to do. If you have ever experienced a moment where somebody has addressed the fact that you're a Christian, but done it in such a way where it's kind of like they take a shot at you, and then like they, they, um, they're like, oh, so you're like, a Christ- you're like one of those Christians or whatever. And then, then there's like a pause, and you're like, you're not sure how to respond, and you're not sure like if the conversation needs to go in that direction or it doesn't need to go in that direction. And lucky for both of you, the, just then the topic changes and you're like, oh, and you just feel like, I feel bad, I feel weird. I feel I like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. I don't feel prepared in this. And it's rightfully so, they didn't ask it hoping that you would answer. They do it in such a way sometimes where it's like they, they make a comment about your face. You're like, or they, they joke about it. Well, this meeting's on Sunday, but of course, uh, Kyla can't be there on Sunday. She's got the whole church thing, right? And so, uh, or well, she's not gonna wanna go. She's one of those churchy people or whatever. And so you're like, you're not even sure. It's like awkward. And if you had like 15 minutes of dedicated time or, or if they would like read a book or listen to a podcast or, or come to church with you, but the moment you say church, the moment you introduce the word church into a conversation, immediately it shifts to, well, I went to a church once and they got all these kind of stories about these, this wacko scenario that they went to and somebody stood up and started saying some things and nobody shut them down. They all clap for him afterwards. You're like, why are you clapping for him? You should not be clapping for him. You should be escorting him outside of the building. Uh, and, and so all kinds of weird stuff about it. So I get it. I, I totally understand that you, you don't feel comfortable. You're not sure exactly what to say in those moments. You're not even, even if you had the time sometimes, you're like, even if I had 15 minutes, I feel like I, because somebody's come to you and they were genuinely interested and you're like, you, you, you kind of pause and you're, you don't answer and they're like, oh no, you really want to know. Okay, so then you start talking and then you're fumbling over your words and you're like, I'm not saying this right and, and you should just, you should just come to church and hear Brent talk because it's better that way. You should just make that happen or whatever. And I got to tell you, it's even awkward for me. Like, so yesterday, um, yesterday I get in, invited by a guy named Tyler who was here in first service um, to take our son. He's got a son um, named Owen who's, in, uh, who's seven years old, and my son is five, almost six. Uh, and he said, I got some Monster Jam tickets up in Spokane. Monster Jam is at the Spokane Arena. It's the Monster Truck Rally thing, right? And I got some extra tickets you want to go with me. So we said, yeah, I'd love to take Grayson up there. That'd be fun. So he comes, and I'm not exactly sure how like the whole car situation is going to work. So he rolls up in one of those sprinter vans, like white 
like no windows, that kind of thing, right? And uh, slides the door open. And, and so then we get in this thing and what we realize is we weren't the only ones invited, which is totally fine. That's his prerogative. I'm not like calling him out on that. It was like multiple people in there, uh, four kids and five dudes. And I didn't know anybody except for Tyler and then his son, Owen. And so I'm like shaking hands with these dudes. We're getting in this car and we're gonna ride up to Spokane for two hours, right? And halfway through the drive, just outside of Ritzville, which, uh, you know, that's, uh, that means like there's more than an hour left in this drive. The guy right in front of me turns to me and he says, so what do you do for work? And I said, oh, I'm a pastor at church. And this is after he had been talking, you know, whatever, all the whole way up, right? <laughs> and uh, he goes, oh, at like a church? And I'm like, yeah I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. No, at an auto parts store. I don't know what you want me to say. Like, yeah, at a church. And, oh, cool, right? And so then it's like face to the front of the windshield. And that was it, right? So like, it's that awkward. So I've been there, guys. I know, and, and he wasn't looking for me, like, not in a position to be like, have you, you know, said yes to Jesus as your Savior and Lord Jesus Christ? Like, we're going to listen to cars, man. What are you, what are you doing to me here? This is crazy. So anyways, I want, I want to help you out. I think, I think it would be important for you to have some sort of a go-to to kind of fall back. Because we, we, have you ever been with somebody who, um, who has a response that is kind of like a one-liner that clearly they've thought through. I have a friend named Jeremy, and he always has these funny little bits, these funny little things that when he says it, it, A, it's humorous, it's got an angle, and you can tell that he's thought through something beforehand, and, uh, and you're like, I, I wanna live life like that. I wanna do that more. So I wanna help you in this area, all right? So for the next couple of weeks, I wanna give you or help you think through or process through the need to be able to come up with some sort of one-liners response to, so tell me, so you're like a Christian, like what, what's that about, right? Or so you believe in like the Bible, right? And then they, and you're like, do you wanna, is there like, you wanna get in this thing about like seven-day creation and Leviticus and all that kind of stuff? Or what's your thoughts on that? Or, and, and, and finally, if you, if you stick around the series long enough, uh, we'll, we'll get to this idea of, so it's suffering, this idea of like, you know, everybody kind of suffers and a good loving God who like allows the Holocaust or allows this or what, what do you do with all of that? So good thought through one-liners that I think you should have in your repertoire or whatever. Uh, not, by the way, not to get them, all right? It's not the goal. So if you're like an outsider going, see, this is what they do. They get together and they figure out ways to like do the ultimate clapbacks or whatever. No, this is not it, all right? This is, this is not to get you. This is to help you respond in a way that you feel like, all right, if, if you, I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself in a position where if you, if you did want to go further, great. And if you don't, then we can talk about, you know, all these monster trucks that are happening. All right. So anyways, that's where we're at. If you continue on in the series, we'd love to have you back for that. So today, what to say about why you believe, so you're like the whole Christian thing. So tell me about, you know, tell me about that, but like, seriously, tell me about that. All right. So we are going to look at the writings of a guy who I think was really, really good at this. And it shows up both in his activity that was captured for us in the book of Acts, which is a, a letter that Luke wrote to a friend uh, about his activity in, in, in the early, um, early church. And then also um, some of his actual writings that he wrote to some of the churches that he responded. The guy's name is Peter. And the reason that name is familiar is because he was one of Jesus' disciples. And not only was he one of Jesus' disciples, but like one of the top three. So Jesus had 12, but then he really had three in there. Like you have friends, but then you have like friends' friends, right? So he's one of the friends' friends in this scenario. Um, and his, his story is significant because he was the fisherman who had, like, was part of the family business, and then Jesus approaches him one day and comes to him in the morning time and says, let's go fishing again. He's like, I just got done, and you fish at night. Don't you, don't you know what you're doing? You're a carpenter. What do you know? 
And he goes out with him again, and then it like blows his mind, and he begins to be like, all right, I don't know fully who you are or what this is all about, but I'm going to I'm going to listen to your request, and I'm going to, I'm going to um, respond to it, and I'm going to follow you. He follows him for a while, uh, and then he, he really goes into this mode. He's asked one time, well, who do you think that I am? I think that you're the Messiah. I think you're the one that we've been waiting for for so long. But then his Messiah is arrested, put on trial, and unjustly crucified. And in that period, in that time period, he denies even having any association with Jesus. So like, it, because for him, logically, Messiahs don't get arrested. Messiahs say, ah, ah, ah. And then like something happens and then not this, right? So when this takes place, he doesn't have like a box to put that in. So he's, he begins to say, I don't really know who you are now. Like I don't, and I don't know if I want to be associated with him. So he denies Jesus. And then what happens, the story goes, the story is captured for us, that he goes back to what he's comfortable with. Immediately after Jesus is, 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 uh, is crucified publicly, he goes back to what's comfortable. He goes back to the family business, probably comes back with his tail between his legs to his parents. Like, all right, my bad. He's out fishing again, and Jesus shows up three days later and invites him on the beach, and they have breakfast together. So, and from that point on, his life is forever changed. Like, he's a completely different person. He's kind of like awkward and not sure, and then he's incredibly confident. In fact, Luke records him going into like the streets, standing up on the picnic tables and be like, all right, everybody, let me tell you about Jesus. You killed him, and uh, you, y'all, y'all did this, and now he's risen from the dead. You should hear this story. So massive amount of confidence as a result of this. He becomes... Basically, the CEO of the Capital C Church. So the the organization, if there was a denomination, he would be the denominational president. He would be the head guy, the head honcho. Um, He's not really located in any specific church. He would kind of float around and help out all of the different ones. Uh, And people would look to him for direction. And he wrote two letters, uh, which is interesting. He was probably way more influential than Paul in terms of the early church, but Paul has so many more letters. So the early church captured at least two of these and said, this is, this is good information uh, that I think people in antiquity, not just the people who this was, the audience was directed for, but people from here on out probably need to have the words. These are special words from Peter. So the early, he made it into the early church canon. It became known as, not creatively, first and second Peter. Why first and second Peter? Because one of them was first and one of them was second. So no creativity there, but it does make it easier to find. So that's great. First Peter chapter three, all of that set up to this, and he's going to be talking about suffering and persecution, which is incredibly relevant for this church in this period and time period, not as relevant for us, though some Christians may publicly come out and be like, we are being persecuted because we cannot put the Ten Commandments on the courthouse, blah, 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 blah. That is not persecution, okay? Um, uh, this is, these are people who would be thrown into jail. They would be, they would be punished uh, unjustly for what they believe. So we, we know nothing about this. There are people in our world who are experiencing persecution for what they believe, but not, no, no Americans are. So don't, don't buy into that, okay? So he's going to talk about suffering. Suffering, the word for suffering shows up 42 times in the New Testament writings, and 12 of them show up in the little tiny book of 1 Peter. So it's a big book on suffering. He's writing to a church who is experiencing this like in, in, in a major way. It shows up in chapter two in a big way, and then he re, recaptures it, says almost the exact same thing in chapter three with a little bit of an add-on, which is why we're gonna be discussing chapter three today. All right, 13, verse 13 through 18, for those of you uh, following along on the screen or on the notes on the, on, the, on the phone or whatever. All right, here's what he says. Who's gonna harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Who's going to harm you? Who harms people who do good things? Like he, he's basically saying this. You're experiencing persecution. You're experiencing some sort of suffering, and you will continue to do so. And you have to realize it's not because 
you're, you're too good of a person, right? There's something, there's an underlying piece with this that's taking place. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are, and then he uses this word makaria, which means blessed. It's the exact same word that Jesus would use in Matthew chapter five or the Sermon on the Mount when we read about the Beatitudes and it says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, all those, all those blessed, blessed. Jesus is pointing to an end goal. Your life is good when these things are happening. So Paul reaches back into that word that they would all be familiar with, pulls it forward and says, when you're experiencing suffering, when you're experiencing persecution and it's because of the good that you're doing, do you realize how lucky you are? Do you realize how blessed you are? Then he pulls this quote from Isaiah that says, do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. And what he's drawing their attention to is, do you really ultimately believe um, that your life is in, like, that, who, who's, who's worse to um, disappoint? The people around you or God himself? Who, whose life really, or who who's, has the most control over your situation? Do you believe that God is in control or do you believe other people are in control? Don't fear them. What can they do to you? I mean, yeah, they could kill you, but the, what, right? And so then like, oh, because that's what I'm living with. Yeah, but don't you see the significance of the other side of things? Don't you see the other side of the equation? Don't you see who you're living towards? Don't you see your, your allegiance is to? He's trying to draw a, a contrast, compare and contrast between disappointed uh, man and disappointing God. So, then um, he goes on to be able to talk about this. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. That word revere means to set aside for a purpose. It means uh, to make front and center. To, a religious word would be to sanctify. And what he says here is Christ as Lord, which sounds like a pretty common thing that you'd hear at church. What we don't realize or fail to realize sometimes is how politically charged this would be. In this day and age, um, uh, Jewish Christians or Christians or converts or whatever would believe in Christianity as um, as, as, as holding to what they would call exclusive monotheism, meaning um, we have one God and to the exclusion of all of the other gods. There were a lot of different religions and Rome was fine with whatever religion you wanted to believe as long as you kind of took into account the Greek and Roman God structure that they had. And uh, to the extent that sometimes it, was, it would go so far as a current living emperor declaring himself to be one of these deities not a dead one, but an, a, one who happens to be alive and therefore deserves your attention, deserves your allegiance, deserves your worship and your sacrifices and all those things. So therefore, to declare Caesar is Lord is to claim ultimate allegiance to this Caesar, this governmental structure. When you deny that, when you say that, so they would come out and publicly say many times, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. It doesn't mean as much for us, but for them, it was, this is a political statement. We are saying that we cannot give ultimate allegiance to an earthly government. Our ultimate allegiance lies elsewhere. Now, we promise to be good citizens and we promise to do these things. We kind of do that even today. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to a, like a sporting event or whatever, but you stand up, you put your hand over your heart with a flag, you take off your hat or whatever, you claim allegiance to an American flag and you do that. And listen, I'm proud to be an American. I think there's a lot of things that America gets right. There are some things that we get wrong, but for the most part, we get a lot of good things right. I'm proud to be an American. And it's okay from a government standpoint for me as a citizen to be like, but freedom of religion, my ultimate allegiance is to Christ. My ultimate allegiance is to God. You get kind of second. And they're like, and the government's typically okay with that, right? They're like, that's fine. I mean, as long as you're, this the whole thing doesn't make you do weird stuff over here, then we're okay with that, okay? But imagine a government that wasn't okay with that. That's what they're experiencing. It's not okay for us that you say that Jesus is Lord. And when you do it, when you're saying it, you're doing it in such a way 
You're trying to make a statement. This is very public. This is very in your face. You're doing this. You're, you're standing in, at, at Howard Amon Park with the flag saying Jesus is Lord. And we know exactly what you're not saying in that. And we know the, the hidden agenda that goes along with this. So hyper political that sometimes we wouldn't catch in this way. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And then he goes on. Now, there's a period here, but there's no punctuation marks in the, in the Greek language, okay? So this would be added later on for theologians to try and make, help us make sense of these things. However, when you read this, it's almost as if they should probably, it should probably be like one run, long run-on sentence. It's in the same breath. As a result of, or in light of um, setting aside reverence for Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer, or I put in parentheses, a defense to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In other words, you should be prepared to have a one-liner this is, this is Brent interpreting Peter's writing here, but you should, this is why we're doing this series. You should have a defense. You should be prepared to have some sort of a thing that you go to, a reliance, something that you've thought through, something that makes sense, something that's not you know, just a cliche or something that's like off the, off, the, off the head or whatever that changes depending on uh, what you've been reading lately or what movie you've been watching. You should have a single statement that encapsulates, encapsulates excuse me, the answer to the question, why have you specifically chosen to follow Jesus? Now, the reason I think that it's important to uh, solidify it down to this is because there, there are a lot of rabbit trails that you can go to. There, there are a lot of things that people can, that can, they, they can bring up. They can be, uh, you know, talk about church and Bible and all, all that kind of stuff. My encouragement to you would be get it to Jesus as soon as possible, Right? All of the other things, listen, there are going to be a lot of things about the Bible. When did it come together? Is the, the Red Sea, the Reed Sea, it, it, who, who added, uh, who wrote some of the things that Paul wrote? Because obviously he didn't write all of them. And, and how does this all work? And there can be a lot of things where you can be like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Here's what I do know. Here's what I'm pretty sure on. Here's what I can't get away from. Here's what I would stake my claim on. Listen, I wanna get back to this as soon as possible. Why I personally believe all the things that I believe, why that I'm a Christian is because what I have to do with this idea of Jesus. And for Peter, the answer was so simple. And it recurs over and over and over again. There are, are, are verses in chapter one of this where he goes through it, but then you can see it in his, in his um, examples that are recorded for us from a third-party perspective in, in Luke's writings, that any time that Peter would get a chance to stand up in front of people, he would point to Jesus. And not only to Jesus, he would point to a specific piece about Jesus, the part of the resurrection, the part that he just couldn't get over. Listen, I've been a lot of, around a lot of people who said some really smart things, but I've never been around somebody who preached about his incoming death, that he would be resurrected, and then he pulled it off. And I don't know about you, I just go with that guy. If, if you have done that, I'm talking from Brent's perspective, if you have done that, I will follow you. Now, I'm gonna need some medical records to verify that you actually died and rose again, but if that's you, like, I go with that. That's his default thing. Like, that's the thing he can't shake. He gets up in front of these people, and he's like, I, he said a lot of parables. Some of them I understood. Some of them I don't get. Um, he, he pulled a lot of Old Testament theology stuff, and I, you know, I, some of it bothers me too, and I came to fulfill the old law, but then I got some you know, critiques about it. You've heard it said this, but I also say this. I don't know exactly what it all means. Here's what I do know. He died and he rose again. And I can't get over that. Listen, we talk about this every Easter. If you've come to Eastlake on Easter, 
Um, uh, for any length of time. I have not changed my Easter message in the nine years that we've been doing this church. It's the same dang thing every year. And every year somebody comes up and goes, this year was so good. And I'm like, you just you have bad memory. It's the same thing. All I've done was updated a few stories, changed a few things around. But for the most part, I get, uh, and this is, it's in April this year, guys, just giving you a heads up for those of you who are like, next time I come, it'll be Easter. That's great. Glad you're here. Um, I'll tell you what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to come up here and we're going to celebrate it. Listen, we're not celebrating National Christianity Day. This is not, ooh, it's so good to be a Christian. This is, we are celebrating an event that we believe actually happened in history for a lot of different reasons is why we believe it. And this is what Paul gets back to over and over and over again. My hope is anchored in an event, not in a set of beliefs, not a set of, of hopes in this and that and the other thing. And I think this makes the most sense of life. I can't get over the fact that he says this thing happened. And I, wasn't, I didn't hear it from people. This is Peter saying. I didn't hear it from people. I saw it with my own eyes. I watched him die. I've seen this process multiple times. I know how this thing works. I know what it smells like. And then three days later, he was cooking fish for me on a beach. I can't get past that. I don't know what to do about it. So I'm in. All right. Verse 15. He's... So he's given his line, he's given his thing. This is, this is so important. But, and then he's gonna go into methodology. This is where we, get, where we stray so often. But do this with gentleness and respect. You see, a lot of times, <laughs> churches are notorious for hearing all the way up through verse 14. And then being like, all right, let's go do this. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're, going, we're coming out firing. And we miss this idea of gentleness and respect. Um, and this isn't about winning arguments or, or having better comebacks. We've gotten this wrong so many stinking times. And here's one of the reasons why. This is just a truth, like a, a quip for life, okay? When, um, when any group thinks that they're the majority, they speak with an authority that they don't really have, all right? This is true politically. This is true in so many different areas. When anybody is a part of what they perceive to be a majority, they speak with an authority that they don't genuinely have, and, and, and then every once in a while it gets challenged and they're not exactly sure why they do this. So for a, lot of, for a long time, you know, Christianity dominated the West. We were in what we perceived to be at least a majority. And so we would say things and do things and our methodology would be one where it's like, get on board or get out or, you know, whatever. You see the signs like, um, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you, but if not, and that's the part that they highlight in bold, and that, that first part's usually kind of small, and then it's like, but if not, eternal fire waits for you, right? And so it's like, we've not really, we've not really listened to Peter and the rest of what he has to say about this gentleness and respect portion at all, and our message has been undermined, undermined by our methodology, and you've seen this in life too. I mean, this shows up in like the business world too. For those of you who have a boss who introduces this new policy or thing or comes back or, or highlights a policy that has been in place, we've just kind of always overlooked it or whatever. And then and all of a sudden he gets up on his soapbox and he says some things and does some things. And you want to kind of pull him aside and be like, listen, dude, I mean, you, I get it. Like, you're right. Like, I, I totally understand. But your methodology is so poor. It's like, it, the way that you're doing it sucks. And so therefore, nobody's listening to you. Do you understand how this is? not working for you. So, and, and what we fail to remember in this moment too, by the way, and I'm just like, this is like, uh, I'm just trying to help us think through some of this, okay? Any, sometimes in life, you will come across people who believe something very, very different from you, politically, religiously, religiously whatever, and in your mind, you think, I don't know how you can see the evidence of the way that I see it and come to a different conclusion that I do. You're an idiot. That's our perception, right? And we, we won't say it, but we will type it. 
but we'll say, um, you're an idiot. And what we fail to realize is the reality that we did not have the upbringing that they had. We did not have the home environment, the family environment. We refuse, we turn a blind eye to some of that stuff. And all we see is what we perceive to be the clear objective evidence that's out there. And listen, anybody who believes anything has some sort of an idea or a good reason to believe the things that they believe. Um, nobody is wrong on purpose, all right? Um, and so I, th- I really do think that Paul's trying to, or sorry, excuse me, Peter, is trying to draw us into this and say, listen, if you come out with like guns ablazing on this thing, it's not, I know it doesn't make sense to you, but it makes sense to them. They don't believe anything wrong on purpose. So you, your method is almost as important as, and the, the medium is almost as important as the message. Do this with gentleness and respect. Verse 16, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, this is kind of like a, uh, uh, he's kind of like sliding something in here that's like a little bit of a gut check, all right? Here's what he's saying. You should live life in a way that they can't, they're gonna criticize you. Like, they're gonna critique you. In life, you will be critiqued. Now, if you do things in life that justify a critique, then you can't be mad at it. They have, then they have something to point to. Don't give them something to actually critique, don't be mad when something bad happens. Like, you know, you get arrested for doing something stupid and you're like, I can't believe this is so unjust. Well, you sold drugs, man. I don't know what you want me to do. Like, you want pity from me. Like, I, I can't offer you that. So what he's saying is this. Live your life in such a way that they, when they critique you, if they do an honest inventory of their life, they may realize it's something in them that doesn't like the goodness that you do. And this is what every parent tells their kids. Like, you know, you know, when you send them off to school and they're getting that age where you're like, listen, I want you to make the wise decision for you. And sometimes when you make good decisions, some people are gonna make fun of you and they're gonna say some things to you. But just so you know, um, they're only saying those things and they're making fun of you because they, are, they're, they're, they feel guilty. They do it out of a bad conscience. They do something. I want you to be, I want you to make the decisions for yourself that are wise for you, right? That's so important. Or uh, another example, if you've ever gone out to eat with a buddy, right? And, and, and you get up to the front of the line at the counter or whatever, and you're like, I'll take a cheeseburger or whatever, right? And then the guy, your buddy behind you goes, I'll take a salad. And you're like, you sucker. You're making me feel bad because I ordered a burger when you get a salad, and he's like, oh, I don't, I don't care what you order. I know, but you, because he, he goes, I'm just trying to watch my weight. I know, me too. I'm, I know I need to do it too. So I'm angry at you, even though you did nothing to justify this and you didn't like roll your eyes when I ordered a burger or brought it out or be like, how's that burger taste? You didn't say anything. And by the way, it tastes horrible now that I know that you're eating a salad. <laughs> if they're gonna slander you or when they slander you, don't give them any reason to do so other than the fact that they would realize it's probably a problem with me if I was to take an honest account of this. Selfless, generous, compassionate living is unassailable. Now, to drive this home, I wanna read to you a little passage that doesn't, it's not from the Bible, it's an extra biblical, it's not even biblical, it's a, it was actually a letter that was written from a provincial, uh, provincial governor uh, named Pliny to the emperor of that time. It happened in about 100 AD. This is like, uh, you can like Google this. This is not, uh, I, I found it last night on georgetown.edu. It's the Georgetown University's website. They have, but it's, there's books, there's penguin books. I think I put the book screen on there. But um, Trajan was the emperor um, after Domitian. Domitian was a very um, 
persecution heavy. He, he really was trying to fight against the Christians. Trajan comes in. He's a little bit more tolerant in 100 AD. This is after Jesus has come and gone. So this is about 40, 50 years after this. Uh, Paul has probably written his letters. The gospel writers are probably just finishing up their sort of writings. The church is expanding, but there's no real Bible yet. There's, no, there's no, nothing to point to and be like, this is what we all believe, right? We're on the same page. The church, though, is experiencing explosive growth. It's showing up and popping up in all kinds of places, as you'll read in here. And what we find in here is uh, that the Roman government, which previously had kind of been um, kind of okay with whatever, they were, so, they were so generous and tolerant as long as you paid your taxes, um, th- then that's fine. You can believe whatever you want to believe. And, th- and as long as you claimed ultimate allegiance, if you were willing to say Caesar is Lord, and then you could do kind of whatever you wanted beyond that. The Christians come up and be like, because of their exclusive uh, monotheism, say, well, we can't say, we're willing to pay our taxes, but we, we, we refuse to identify in that way. So as a result, um, the government under, under Domitian became very highly persecuting towards these churches. Now, then it gets a little bit softer, but it, a, a thing goes out, a message goes out from the capital saying and explaining to all of these provincial governments, so not in Rome, this is beyond the outer edges of the empire. Listen, if you come across Christians, here's how you should handle them, all right? You should uh, uh, arrest them, you should interrogate them, uh, you should try and get them to uh, recant their beliefs, uh, and then if they are willing to do that, and if they are willing to make um, sacrifices and uh, offerings to emperor, the emperor um, and uh, denounce Christ, then they, you, can, you just let them go, right? So Pliny is, uh, and it's, by the way, it's Pliny the Younger, and the reason it's that is because he had an uncle who raised him who was called Pliny the Elder. Again, not creative with first and second Peter, with Pliny the Elder, the names, all, all that. Um, he's a governor in a small province in modern-day Turkey. Um, he gets this letter. He begins to do this persecution thing. And then he writes uh, a, a letter to the emperor to ask some clarification because it feels a little amb- ambiguous. And he's a little bit concerned because of, of what he's been finding as a result of this. And he kept his letters. He was kind of like a little do-gooder a little bit because uh, he kept his letters all over the place. He wanted to make sure he was on good legal ground. Um, and so he not only kept the letters that he sent, but he kept the ones that he received back from the emperor. And then they come to us and they've survived the centuries. And now you can order this on Amazon or get it on Kindle for zero dollars. So it's awesome. Um, so exchanges between Pliny and the capital. And uh, these were, by the way, were the earliest surviving Roman documents to refer to early Christians. The first time the word, the topic of Christianity comes up is this right here, this little letter that we get back from him that he's asking. And basically, I'm going to summarize the first part, although if, if you want to, that link is on the note sheet or Google it or whatever. You can read the entire thing in its, in its uh, uh, entirety or whatever. It's not that much. Um, but he, he basically said, we rounded some of them up. We've interrogated them. We've even put some of them to death because they kind of made a spectacle of it, and I didn't know how you wanted to handle it. And you said, go as far as death. And so that's what we did. And here's what we found out. We've there's actually more than we thought of. We thought it was like this small thing, but then what happens is we keep getting these letters uh, about people who are anonymously, uh, anonymously saying, hey, my neighbor's one too. You should go get him, right? And so what do we do about this? Like, they're not claiming to be, like, do you want us to seek this out or do you want us to kind of, like, only if it comes up in conversation or how does this work? And then now he goes, I'm gonna read specifically from this letter, okay? The sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn. Now, he got this information from somebody who recanted from the faith. He, he, he got somebody who was like, I used to be a Christian, but now I'm not. I promise I'll say whatever you want me to say. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And in the process of interrogation, they gave away some of the info of what happens behind the scenes because a lot of it wasn't known to the Roman Empire. What is this Christianity thing all about? They had some preconceived ideas about it, but they weren't sure. Here's the information we got. Oh, great, Emperor Trajan. They meet on one day of the week, 
on a certain day of the week, which happened to be Sunday, which was the day of the Lord's resurrection. For them, it was a work day. For us, it's not. They would wake up early right before work. They would gather together. They would show up early on Sunday. You guys, it's so hard to get people to come to 9.30 service or even 11. And even at 11, you're at like 11.15. You don't even know we do worship songs, right? Whatever. They sing responsively to a hymn. Some of you like hate the singing, right? They're like, this is what they do. They sang responsively to a hymn. What do you mean they sang? Well, they didn't have a text. They didn't, they didn't sit around a, a Starbucks and be like, all right, everybody open up your books to the, you know, the book of, uh, uh, of John, and we're going to read a text together. They had nothing. So what they figured out, the early church figured out is we, could, we need to communicate doctrinal information to the people. And instead of trying to do it line by line, if we put it in the form of a song, perhaps people will know it better. And, and this is true for like how human brains work. If we can give it a rhythm and, and, and a tone and, a, and a this back and forth, you know the more lyrics to songs. I could start songs from the 90s. And for those of you who are my age, if I, if I said an Eve Six song or a something else song or a Third Eye Blind song, you'd be like, I know this, right? You haven't sung it for years and you'd be able to uh, finish it for me right away. So they know this. So they say, all right, we're gonna put some really significant doctrinal training into this. In fact, it shows up multiple times in Paul's letters that he writes. Philippians chapter two, really famous chapter on, on who Jesus was and how he came as a servant and died and all that kind of stuff. Many theologians believe that was one of the very first songs that was uh, psalms or hymns or whatever that was taught to people to kind of train them who Jesus was. So this is Pliny saying, they get together early, early, early before work. They sing a song responsibly together to Christ as to a God. They treat this person that we crucified, and then we're not exactly sure. The whole body thing, like there's some mixed stories that came out about it. We're not exactly sure what happened. They treat him as if he's a God. And to bind themselves by oath. Here's the dirty secret about what they do. They bind themselves by oath, not to some crime. Hey, we're all going to get together. We're going to rob Caesar's palace. There's going to be 11 of us. We're going to meet out the fountains afterwards, and we're going to celebrate, right? We're doing this all together. We go down together, or we win together. Not to some crime but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery. They get together. Let me get this right. They get together. They sing a song, and they're like, all right, guys, in your workplace today, no fraud, no theft, no adultery. Not falsify their trust, don't lie, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. I'm gonna, you, I'm gonna trust you with some information. You're not gonna tell anybody else. I'll, I'll be trustworthy. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. Why do you think he felt it compelled to be able to identify what kind of food is going on? Because there was a word going, there was words going around about Christianity that they perceived, they, they're like, we don't know much about this thing, this whole thing. They're like, have you heard like this Christianity thing that's going on? I think they're like cannibals. That, that, seriously, I'm not like pulling that out of a hat. They genuinely thought, there was word going around that Christianity is cannibalism, or is a form of cannibalism, that they ate babies. Why did he think that they came up with this? The reason is because they had heard about this idea, well, they get together and they do this thing called communion, and they read this verse about how Jesus broke this piece of bread and said, this is my body broken for you, and this is my blood, this wine represents my blood that has been poured out for you. So they're literally eating the flesh and drinking the blood, of the, and it's weird, man, get away from that thing, man, that's so weird. So Pliny feels compelled to be able to write this down. Like, I know that there's some like question marks of what they're doing. So they're getting, here's, here's the nitty gritty on what they're doing. They get together early, they sing a song. They talk about not lying, cheating on their husbands or thieving from their jobs. And they eat food together, but like bread food, like McDonald's. So like, what do you want me to do with this? Honestly, honestly, he's writing going, 
I'm supposed to be like aggressively going against these people, but they sound like pretty good citizens. So I'm not exactly sure what I'm supposed to do with this. They seem like the type of people we want in our empire. Listen, when I was like 16 years old, I got my first job working at uh, Red Lion over in Pasco. And my uh, manager found out that I was uh, a pastor's kid, Christian, whatever, and, and I worked hard, and I, I showed up for my shifts when I was supposed to show up. I like, never called in sick, and, and she knew I was a pastor's kid, and, and she, she knew, like, she, she would talk to me and be like, I love it. Do you have any, do you have any more friends that are like you? Because you, you show up, you, you never complain, you work hard, and you don't drink my alcohol, and it's so great. If you could just keep, if you could just find more of you, right? This is, he's saying, like, I know, like, I'm supposed to be against these people, but gosh, it feels like. Feels like they're pretty good people. What do you want me to do with this? Oh, great emperor, they might be the best citizens in our town. There's a response from him that you can follow along with. But this is, what, this is the kind of thing that Peter's been saying to these guys. Hey, do this with generosity and, and, and live your life in such a way that, that none of that factors into this. Then he goes on, for it is better, verse 17, if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Um, if you're going to suffer, you're going to suffer anyways. Why not do it? Because you do something good instead of evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Then he ties this all back. He, he kind of, and this is the culmination of our time together, but also his thing together. He wraps this up and says, you know what? You might suffer unjustly for something that you believe in. And you might experience um, pain and it might be complete injustice. And you know who else went through something like that? Jesus did. It's a pretty good, pretty good model to follow, pretty good pathway to follow. He's trying to have them see, when you do this, you're only walking in the footsteps of Jesus. So anyways, wrapping this all back, what does this mean for us? When you are faced with the question, why do you, why have you chosen to follow Jesus? My encouragement to you, my, my whatever, if you could listen to anything that I have to say, would be you've got to learn to ignore some of the other objections that are going to go on there, Right? I believe that your answer and my answer has got to look something a lot like Peter's, that we, we, we talk, again, talk about this every single Easter and know the reason I, I'm, I'm a Christian um, is sometimes we think, oh, uh, because of my story, my background, man, I used to be into this and this and this, and I used to sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and then I found Jesus and everything, and I asked him into my heart, and everything's good. That's really, really great. I'm, just like, I'm like, proud of you. Like, that's awesome. It's a great story. Um, but the reason that you asked him in your heart is because you felt like there was something uh, alive about that. Like, it was like a, a presence thing. It wasn't like something that happened, but like, it, it was an active presence in your life that helps guide you into this. And because uh, the problem is, for those of us who don't have a great story, you're like, I, I think I stole like a candy bar once or something like that. Like, I'm not sure. I don't have like this cool, great story. What do I do when, when I want to say I, I believe in something? This, this whole thing encapsulates everything. The reason that you invited Jesus in, the reason it meant something to you is because you felt like he was alive. And why is he alive? Because he rose from the dead. Like all of this story, and I can't really shake that. And it explains so much for me. So this is what we keep coming back to with all of this. I feel like it's important for you and I to figure out a way as quickly as possible when faced with a, well, yeah, so you're a Christian, like, what's that about? To weave in the resurrection of Christ. Talk about Jesus, but not just leave it, he was a really cool guy. To weave in, I think that he genuinely did die and then figured out this way to like be death and I don't know anything about it, so I'm like, I'm, I'm for that. I'm, I'm in with that guy. So an example, I think you need to come up with your own one-liner probably, but I'm gonna give you an example to kind of go off of and, and this is not necessarily like mine, this is just a very, very general one, okay? I believe... Jesus died for my sin, 
and rose from the dead. Well, what do you, so why do you believe, why do you follow, personally follow this? I believe he died, and I think that my sin had something to do with it, and I'm not exactly sure how that all worked, the atonement philosophies, and all that. I know it's crazy, but I feel like I had a sense of, of guilt, and when he, and I've done, I'm not perfect, I'm not, I'm not an individual, his death somehow, somehow uh, provides uh, a, 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 a level of redemption in this, like it does something for me, and then, I, and then he rose again. I think that that's what's important. And man, I don't know all the answers, and a lot of things bother me about this stuff too, but here's what I do know, here's what I do believe. And I'm not saying this because I have all the answers to your questions. I don't, man. I, I really don't. I believe that you, and then, and then it goes on. There's a little tagline I want you to add that's gonna lead us into next week, all right? I believe Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead, but I don't believe it because the Bible says so. It's a very general term, and uh, the Bible says a lot of things, and, and some of them we, we like, oh, I don't know, and then the other things we're like, we feel like this, I feel like I need to you know, be about it, right? And it's important, it really truly is, I and mean, we talked about it all morning, but I don't believe the Bible says so. I think it's better than that. My one-liner, if you could, could kind of take and go with this, would be this. When people go, so the Christianity, what's that about? I believe that uh, Jesus died for my sins. I don't want to get into how the weeds for that. I mean, we can go as far as you want with that. I think he rose again. And I don't believe it just because the Bible says so. I think it's more important than that. I think it's better than that. And then you just eat a fry. And they're like, <laughs> okay, I'm intrigued now. Okay, go on, right? I think at that point then, if the door is there, the door opens. So if you want a thought through one liner thing, man, and I don't want us to be robots. Like, you got to figure out for yourself. I don't want it to, like, we're all going to repeat this together as a cult, right? We're going to go out, and you show up for work, and you happen to work with somebody else who goes to Eastlake, and then they say it, and then you say it too, and everybody's like, all right, something weird's happened at the Uptown Theater on Sundays. Got to watch out. I don't believe it just because the Bible says it. There's so much more to it than that. Next week, we'll talk about what more to it than that looks like. All right, hopefully join us for that and the rest of the series. Uh, if you happen to miss and, and want to follow along with the series, there's a website. You can go to eastlaketricities.com slash talks. We also have a podcast on iTunes. If you go to iTunes and search in the podcast, East Lake Tri-Cities, you'll find it there. Um, before we close in prayer, I usually close in prayer now, but I wanted to uh, make mention, I have a, uh, a college roommate who, his name is Wes, and his wife, uh, Vanessa, they are launching a church today. They've been in the process for the last few months. Um, he was one of my uh, favorites, um, not just at, at college, and, and, but I mean, we, we decided to room together for an entire year. Um, he was probably my most spiritual roommate, if I could say that. Um, he was very challenging to me in his personal disciplines and just a good general dude. Uh, him and his wife um, have done a lot of things since, um, since college, uh, they've been pastors at different churches, and they've done secular um, jobs as well. Uh, but then they decided a few months ago, we're going to launch a church in L.A. It's called The House L.A., and uh, it's, they've been planning for months and months and months, and today's their big day. I texted them this morning and said, uh, I'm praying for you, and I didn't want to be the guy who's like, I'm praying for you, and then I never do. So I thought, I'm praying for you, and we're going to add it as a part of kind of what we do, because uh, we were in that position just a few years ago, and I know that uh, I, I believe in the efficacy of the, the actual working of prayer, and so I, hopefully you can join me, and I don't, you don't have to go to LA to visit them, but if you're down in LA, that'd be kind of cool too, but um, anyways, let's pray. Father, our prayer is that you would help us. Um, as we kind of 
work through the things that we believe and um, try and be, uh, get to a spot where we can verbalize them and verbalize them in a meaningful, thought-through, you know, thought-provoking way that it would hopefully, for those who are expressing a genuine interest, open the door for further conversation and then help us in that direction too. But uh, we just want to be smart with all this. And so uh, as we process through this individually, help us to give us uh, wisdom and insights into what this would look like. And for Wes and Vanessa too, as they're going down and starting this brand new community uh, in LA and they're, they're meeting with people. I, I, my prayers that people would show up, not because they're looking for a better version of the way the church is done, but in the same way that we launched this, we wanted to be a genuine, authentic community for people who are looking for um, uh, uh, people to be able to do life with, and as well as learn what it would mean to find and follow uh, the pathway that Jesus uh, taught us about. And uh, so I pray that, that takes place in their church, and uh, I pray that all of their endeavors, marketing endeavors, and everything else would, would continue to flourish, and it would work. And, and uh, we pray that you would give them wisdom and us wisdom as we continue on this path. Give us uh, strength and courage to be able to do that in your name. Amen.